Hey, I'm Stephen Povatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10:15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. Chad, I sort of, um, on behalf of all our three and four-year-olds, resent the idea that they're not interested in Acts 15. Um, but, you know, sometimes it'd be like that. Uh, so I want us to start uh, today in, with a, a little bit different. We're going to have a, a moment of prayer. And I uh, wanted to uh, have two different uh, places. I want us to, first of all, have a moment of intercessory prayer. where We pray for different people in our lives. Uh, and then I want us to have a little bit of time that we pray uh, openness uh, to the Word of God. So what I want to do before we start that out is, uh, in our prayer, we're just going to have some, some open time, some silent time, which is only possible because the three and four-year-olds have, uh, have gone. Um, I want us to have a little bit of time where um, we just silently hold in our hearts those people that have needs among us, uh, or in the communities that we're a part of out, outside of this one, uh, and then we'll, we'll pray uh, uh, towards the Word of God. So before we do that, before we have that time of prayer, um, I want to just have a moment where uh, we can kind of call out to each other and say if there are things, if there are people in your life or in your community or uh, your neighbors or whoever that are uh, in need of prayer today, uh, let's just let's share some of those. I, I'll, I'll begin and say uh, many of us I know are um, really holding uh, Andy Hicks in, in our hearts and Cammie and their boys. Andy's had some heart issues uh, over the last week and he's had surgery and still still has some issues ahead of him to work through. I'm uh, holding Andy in my heart today. Um, who are some other people? I know Ra- where's Rachel Floyd, is she still in here? Yeah, I, you mentioned on our Facebook thread the, uh, your two coworkers, is it Paige and David? Am I right? Okay. Paige and David that recently lost a, lost a child um, just after birth. And so uh, I, I know that's somebody else we can, we can hold in our hearts in prayer. Who, who else? Who has somebody else that we could hold today? Sure. Charles, tell me the name again. Charles Bacchus and um, the different people that may hold him in, in their hearts and in that grief. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Who else? Yes. My husband's last surviving aunt, very respectfully. Chloe Sanchez, it was Lily Sanchez. All right. So Lily Sanchez, um, who died recently, and the different people that are holding her in, in their grief. So, yeah, go ahead. Hey, everybody, Mark and Liz. Okay, so Miss Faye has been moved to a nursing home. Did you say here? In Clinton, Arkansas. Okay. Glenn family going back to Kenya soon. Yes. Thank you for sharing this. Yeah, go ahead. 
very clever. Yeah, right. Appreciate that. All the fathers trying to be good men, um, good spouses, good fathers of their children in faith. Appreciate that. We have a couple that made me think of, we have a couple of brand new uh, sets of parents, um, a little baby Adonis and baby Sky that were born in the last few weeks, and we want to pray for uh, those families. Sure. What's family is they remember Sarah? Okay, so let's have some time where we and you may have many others. I know that obviously there are many others that uh, we we kind of held to ourselves there, um, and so let's just have a prayer, and um, as we do that. You know, it's speaking those names before God, but it's also, uh, to me, intercessory prayer a lot of times is just holding that person and thinking about what they're going through and, and dwelling on that for a moment and just holding that person before God. So let's do that together, and then I'll close with a prayer about our uh, seeking the Word today, okay? Let's pray together. Oh, holy God, uh, you who know us inside and out, know the depths of our being, know us deeper than we know ourselves, Today, we call to mind these friends of ours, our neighbors, people that we know and all dear, who have needs before you. And on their behalf, in the name of Jesus, we hold them before you. Oh God, hear our prayers. Oh God, it is the way of our people to come to you for the things that we need and also for the word that comes from your mouth. We pray today that as we seek your word, that it will continue to transform and to convert us and to change us and that the, wor the work of the gospel would bear fruit among us. Uh, just as it's been doing from the, from the very first moments that we heard your gospel, we pray that you would continue to shape us so that we may be fruit bearers for your kingdom in this world. May the word that we dwell in today do its work among us uh, so that your will may be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. In the name of Jesus, we all pray together. Amen. You have different kinds of friends. You have friends when you go to their houses, everything is put up perfectly. Is this true? You have friends that may only come into your dwelling place when it is spick and span. And if you're lucky enough, you got other friends who you can go into their house and it doesn't look spick and span. You got a friend like that? If you are lucky enough, you have got friends that when they come to the door and your laundry is all on the dining room table, come on, get a preacher, get an amen. 
You don't just open the door halfway and stick your neck out and block the door and say, how can I have you today? But you welcome them on in, right? And they can walk past the untold, un, dare we say, ungodly number of socks that a single family can produce. Last night's dinner, a skillet still unwashed. You got a friend like that? That comes in and sees your mess? In the book of Acts, we get to hang out with our friends, Peter and James and John and Paul and Silas and Barnabas, John, Mark and Mary and Rhoda. And sometimes we might get the illusion that their houses all look just dandy and perky and fine. It's all, let us sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. Stone us, we don't care. We keep coming back for more. They all get along in perfect harmony. They're selling everything they have for each other's own sakes. And man, the dining room sure just looks a little too tidy, right? But we are very fortunate that these friends of ours, these forefathers and mothers of our faith, don't just invite us in when everything is all put together and tidy. That they're willing to welcome us over in the 15th chapter of Acts as well, when all their laundry is laying all over the place. We're invited to see the church when it's sort of a mess, when they are in the middle of much dissension and debate and contention, we get to see the church not just in its idealized state, but in the messy process that has the part of its reality just as much as it's a part of my reality, your reality, our reality too. The big question at work in Acts 15 is, who is in? And it's a church, uh, it's a question that the church and other communities like the church have to constantly ask uh, it's, itself or themselves. You constantly come up against this. And I wish it was all resolved in the 15th chapter of Acts and evermore to be touched again. But we are always bumping up against this question of who we can tolerate in our midst. And while I think most of us Gentile folk have kind of moved on from at least the idea that we Gentiles should be included in the kingdom of God, sometimes we still get hung in the theological questions about who really has crossed the line into the kingdom of God and who is still outside the door. And sometimes that's a theological question. It's the question of, uh, you know, have, have they performed the right rituals? Have they undergone the right kind of training? I'll be honest and say that I think the theological questions for most of us are not as sticky as some of the other just social questions. Questions like, can people who look different than me or who talk differently than I do. Notice the correct grammar in that sentence. It's tricky. 
the people who don't talk right and act right and think right and pray right, are they necessarily allowed to come in too? Or what about this? What about people that are just doggone socially awkward? Do you have to be cool to be a part of the kingdom of God? No. But it helps to connect with a small group. I mean, part of the question is not who's in theologically, but who actually gets to be a part of the community, in the heart of the community, who gets to reap the blessings of what those relationships look like, right? Who actually gets to not just hang out in the foyer, but who actually gets to come and to be part of, part of the group, right? Who's in? I don't know, maybe this early church was a little lucky that their question was more theological, that it had to do with whether the people who had been pagans and not part of the Jewish people with their gifts of law and their gifts of election by God and their gifts of a story of faith that went all the way back to Abraham. Their question was, could people who didn't have all that, uh, that, that legacy, could they also find a space in the kingdom of God, without also saying, we'll take on this circumcision ritual, and we'll take on the customs that you have from your law, we'll take on the commands that God has given the people uh, through Moses, we'll take on all of that, transforming ourselves from Gentiles, becoming Jews, we'll do all that so that we can have a seat at the table. Well, their question, I don't know, maybe it's some social, but it's I've got a lot of theological stuff underneath it, that question of who's in. It was hard. It was painful. It was messy. People's feelings got hurt. People said things they shouldn't have said. Some people were made to feel like they didn't belong, and some people were arrogant jerks about the whole thing. It was messy. But I'm glad we get to come inside for it. I'm glad we get to come into that house and see ourselves in their family pictures, to see ourselves in a church that can hold up in the messy moments the process that's here um, that we see is, is a process of discernment. And when we say that, fancy, that's a fancy church sort of word, discernment is, but it really just means the messy process of trying to figure something out. And sometimes there are lots of different ways that we think about trying to discern from one path or another or what's good and what's bad. You know, Paul writes that if we have, uh, if we have fully committed ourselves to uh, understanding God and made ourselves as living sacrifices, we give ourselves over as living sacrifices to God, then we're going to be able to discern the will of God, what, what is good and, and bad. I think our teens have been studying that in Romans 12 this, this time, right? That's, yep, yeah, okay. You're looking on, but I wasn't sure that you were doing the things that I would say. Okay, all right, good, okay. It's discerning, right? 
discerning, figuring it out, looking and see what's what and what's not. Luke Timothy Johnson is a scholar that's done a lot of work on this chapter of Acts chapter 15, and uh, he identifies a whole set of things that the church does. I want you to look at some of the tools that show up in this chapter that the church uses for that process of figuring stuff out, for that process of discernment, okay? And there's some things that I don't know that I would necessarily pick, and then there's other things that maybe I would. The first thing that shows up is uh, down in verse 6 of Acts chapter 15. And it says, the apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter, okay, this matter of whether the Gentiles can be included or not, like Paul and Barnabas say. And it says in verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, and he's going to give them a little speech at this point, okay? Much debate, much debate. It started off, that word shows up in verse 3 as well, when the whole situation just starts bubbling up. It says, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And then they went on and they go, and they, uh, they, that's when they actually bring the question down to Jerusalem. That was up in Antioch. So here they are. They gather, and they have a question, and they're going to figure it out, and they have to kind of throw out different pros and cons and arguments in one favor and the other. And, that, and let me tell you, that's a tricky thing to do. It's a tricky thing for the church to be able to debate something. Now, I know, I know there were some uh, high school debaters that came up from this church. I, too, was a high school debater. That's right. I'll show you my nerd card, okay? I know some of you guys were like, no way, right? That's I learned that to be a good high school debater, one of the first things you got to learn to do, you got to learn to decide that you're completely right. Regardless of the fact that sometimes you go from uh, one uh, argument in one round and then the next, you know, an hour later, you would find yourself arguing essentially the exact opposite. But in order to win the debate, in order to convince somebody else that you were right, you can't ever convince somebody else that you're right unless you're completely committed to the idea yourself, right? what a trick of psychology that is to make yourself believe sometimes that you're right. It's a great way to win a high school debate. Pretty sorry way to enter into conversation with the church, though. Now, sometimes we do need people who are willing to be strong advocates for a position here or there, okay? But we ought to be careful about committing to the argument more than we're committed to the community. Because there's a difference in winning and debating and dialoguing and arguing for the sake of seeking truth. Our society knows nothing about this. We only think about what it means to argue in order to win and to make the other side look stupid. The art of persuasion, of trying to think about what the best argument for something's sake is so that I can persuade other people. Also, listen, cracking the door open just enough so that I too might be persuaded. It's something of a lost art. 
the ability to have conversation that has the potential to change somebody's mind. So that's one of the first things here. They have a debate. They have a, an argument. They, they throw everything out on the table and, and everybody says where their position is. Kind of an embarrassing thing to have happen, right? Like that's part of the mess. That's the laundry on the table. It's the part of the church that says we can hold up with all of us not necessarily thinking the same thing at the beginning. We'll survive it. It'll be okay. What churches can dare do that anymore, right? Another thing they do, though, is they, they give space for people to tell their story. There's testimony and talking. Look into verse 12. and The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among uh, the Gentiles. Okay, that's what's on the other page. Before this, Peter has stood up and he's told his story of the way, that, uh, the, ch the way that he was called to give a ministry to the Gentiles and to hear, and, if and you know, if you remember that story from Cornelius, just a couple of chapters back, chapters 10 and 11, Peter goes even though he didn't want to. And he himself has this, persuade. he's been persuaded by God of something that he didn't hold at the beginning. And it was the time that God was calling these Gentiles to himself. So there's this part of the space, right, where they're trying to discern, they're trying to figure something out, and discernment requires testimony. It requires people speaking candidly about their experience of God and of the Holy Spirit and the things that they've seen and also the things that they haven't. That's part of what discernment requires. Space where we can tell each other stories. Stories of success and pain and hope and fear. Stories where it all went right and stories that ended in lament and wailing. So Peter tells his story. Paul and Barnabas share some of their stories about all the things that they've experienced. So we have some debate and then we have this testimony. Another thing that we have is we have reflection on Scripture in this story. In Acts 15, there's this moment where uh, the James, okay, when he's going to say his piece, this is James, the brother of the Lord, the brother of Jesus, he's at this point, um, there's enough time has passed that James has become a very influential person in the church. Even though he wasn't one of the original apostles, he's risen to this stature, and he, he finally has a word that he says, and it's pretty significant, it's... it's it, an argument that wins the day. But notice what he says in verse 14. He says, Simeon, is, and this is probably just a reference to, uh, to Peter, there's other thoughts too, but that's, I think that's what's going on. Simeon has related how God looked favor, uh, looked, first looked favorably on the Gentiles to take from, them among, uh, take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets, as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins. I will rebuild it. I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. And thus says the Lord, who has been making these things known from long ago. He's quoting mostly from uh, the book of Amos in chapter 9, uh, from the Septuagint version, very importantly. 
uh, and he's talking about what it, what it, what the prophets had to say about this potential for the Gentiles to be sought by God. Scripture has a place to play in our discernment, and that's part of the work that we're doing right now, right? It is letting ourselves dwell in Scripture, letting ourselves be soaked and saturated with Scripture, so that when we come to times of discernment, we can look and we can hold up what has, what's happening in our present, and we can hold it up to Scripture and also maybe hold Scripture up to it. Notice how the agreement goes, and this is maybe one of the bothersome things about this passage. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that what Peter says is agreeing with Scripture. He actually says, he actually, the flow of it goes the other way. He says, Peter has given his testimony, and the prophets agree with it. So he uses the prophets to reinforce what they're experiencing of, of God in that moment. God's, uh, Lou Timothy Johnson says that it is the process of asking, uh, taking the experience of God's action and using that to reflect on and reinterpret the scriptures rather than taking the scriptures and using that to reinterpret what they see God doing in that moment. That's a tricky little direction, I think. But here, James holds up, and he says we're experiencing what the Spirit, experiencing what God is doing in this place. And it, what he looks and he says this is also, this is something that we can see. We can trace this, what we've heard from the prophets. And then I'm going to skip a few steps here, okay? And that's not just me. It's not my choice, okay? I think there are lots of other terms that we could have. I mean, we could have uh, times of fasting and prayer, okay? We could have some uh, other, other things that we might include in this process of discernment. But somehow, we get down to verse 22, and it, it seems like it skips a lot. James speaks, and he says, this is what I, it says, what I judge or what I discern. This is what he sees as this, He's in agreement that we should send, this, uh, send them this letter. only mentions a few things to abstain from. And then in verse 22, just magically, it says, and then the apostles and the elders, with the consent of the whole church, or the whole church together, decided to choose men from among their members to send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They're eventually going to pick um, Judas and Silas, Okay, they're going to send them on. I got to tell you, I need more in this chapter. I would love to see, because I just, it's just not been my experience that one person speaks and then everybody's like, okay. Right? And I, it just seems like between verse 21 and verse 22, there's like six other verses that still should be there. Like somebody stormed out. I don't know. You know? So part of this process is somehow they got to a place, and, and it's a place of compromise, I think. James offers something that's not what everybody is saying. He offers this position, and somehow they all say, that's what we're going to do. Now, 
I don't know if that meant that every person sitting there at the table said, yes, I am 100% on board with everything in that letter. That's exactly what I think we should say too. But somehow they got to the place where they said, this is what we're going to do. And they did it. And it was transformative for the church. This moment where they come to an agreement and they send this out, it, it, it's a transformative moment for the, how the church is going to deal with this question of Jews versus Gentiles in the rest of its uh, history. Not that there are going to be issues and things that they have to figure out. And, you know, you get something with a letter, a letter that lasts like a paragraph long, you're still going to have some stuff you've got to flesh out later along the way, right? There's always more questions. There's always reinterpretation. There's always figuring it out a little bit more. Can I prove that to you real quick? How many of you guys have really worried about eating meat with blood in it this last week? That's in the letter. We've kind of reinterpreted this and moved on and found other ways of thinking about these things. So there's more to the story, but I love this process. I love this process of what the church undergoes in Acts 15. I love that they are able to have this space where they bring in argument and disagreement and they figure it out. They just kind of work it and they, and they, don't, they don't blow apart. They work on it. It's messy. I think that in order to have that, and this is the thing, by the way, that I think is so missing in our, in our larger culture. In order to do that, you have to have good faith. And what I mean by that is you have to have some sense that the people that you're talking to might have something worth saying. And you need them to think the same thing about you. Both parties have to be open to persuasion and open to consideration and open to thinking about the other in terms of what they're bringing to the table in a good way, not just the negatives. Good faith is the ingredient, right? I'm going to tell the truth and I'm going to trust you to tell the truth. It's the ingredient that makes this whole process of discernment as a community possible. Without good faith, there is only the fracturing of communities in greater and greater hostility. Without good faith, there's only power. And who can get the most of it? We think about what's at stake in this story, and I, I'm, I'm really kind of talking about what, what this story gives us and benefit uh, and what we can learn from it for our own issues, for their own separate thing. But what's at stake in this story, besides all that, is are they going to be willing to follow God beyond their preconceptions of God? The good faith conversation isn't just with my brother, it's also with God. It's also with the people, not, it's, it's, it's with the people that I disagree with, but it's also with the possibility that God may lead me somewhere that I didn't foresee myself. What not just Paul and Barnabas, but Peter and, and James and, and the rest of the church have to be willing to see in this space, they have to hold in good faith the possibility that God might surprise them. Might even offend them. Might lead them somewhere. 
it is a power story. It's a story about whether the church was going to control what God was going to do or whether they would be willing to follow God's lead. That God could indeed lead them to a place to reach people that they, they had no concept of reaching before. There's a lot of stake in this story for the church, but also for the mission of God. For the church's participation in what God was leading them to do and to be. This is a story about whether the church would be in control of the pace or whether they would look to God and see what God was at work doing in the world. Just keep trying to catch up. I'm playing catch up my own self, trying to figure out where it is that God is leading, not just me, but also all of us together, and where God is at work doing in the world. And there's a lot of mystery at work in that. It's not stuff that I have all figured out. I don't, I don't have like a file on my computer that says, these are the 10 things that God's leading is definitively doing in the world. I think about it a lot. And I love talking about it with you and thinking about it with, with, our, with our staff and our shepherds and, and thinking about it with people here in the church who are trying to actively figure out and ask that question that doesn't necessarily have the one, two, three, four point answer. We are together seeking where God leads, trying to follow Jesus. What do we say? following Jesus together. And that means asking, where in the world is that guy going? At the end of this story, I think there is sort of the key of, to all this, I guess, There is this moment that they are able to speak and talk about what uh, what the story is is, is I guess what uh, what they've aside decided the kind of letter that they're going to write and they, and, they, and and remarkably they say it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we should tell you these things so they unabashedly are able to speak to God's action to here. But there's this thing, and it's in verse 11, and it's when, uh, it's when Peter has spoken up and he's speaking about the, the Cornelius part of the story. And at the end, he says, he, he kind of asks a question. He says, uh, why are we going to put this burden on, on these people that's been hard for us? And in verse 11, he says this, on the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. It comes back to this understanding that at the end, we can ask all these questions and we can lay down the idol of our certainty about the answers on the front end because we know that in the end, 
Our salvation depends on the common grace of God that we all share. Not on our ability to figure it out and not on our ability to have all the answers perfectly uh, set. It doesn't depend on our wisdom or intelligence. It depends on the grace of God given to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And a church that depends on common grace can get into the messy spaces. It can ask the questions about who's in without feeling threatened when they walk in the door. A church that believes in common grace can talk with each other about some of the weird and crazy things that we actually believe without feeling threatened that it's going to make us look like outsiders among our brothers and sisters. A church that believes in common grace can let each other in the door without blocking the way and say, come, see my mess. Back, sit down with me and help me fold my socks. I need not put on a mask in front of you because we are all saved by the grace of Jesus. And the story from the beginning of the end is never a story of our own accomplishments. It's always the story of the God who leads us by the grace of Jesus. I want to end like we started today. I want to end with a moment of prayer. If you would stand with me. Don't start singing yet. I know it's hard. Stand with me. And I want us to just, I want us to stand together before God in that grace as we pray. Let's pray together. O giver of all good things, who has given us the things that sustain our bodies and our hearts, who has given us joy as a testimony to your presence among us. We stand before you, humble and thankful in the grace of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for your salvation and your forgiveness. And we pray that you will boldly lead us to bear testimony to others so that they may share in the blessing of this community and they may share in the good work of Jesus along with us. Oh God, may we be a church that openly speaks with each other about what we see God doing and that speaks to each other in good faith because of the common grace that you show us. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen.